Hi, everybody. Welcome to New Frontiers in Functional Medicine, where we are interviewing the best minds in functional medicine. And of course, today is no exception. I'm very excited to be with Dr. Joe Raphael. Uh, we've been podcasting together for years now. Let me give you his background. You'll love our conversation. Actually, my conversations with Joe are always some of our top uh, podcasts. Uh, he received his BA from Princeton, his MD from Drexel. He trained at New York Hospital Cornell University Medical Center. He was also a clinical assistant professor of medicine at Dartmouth. Uh, he's a member of the Endocrine Society. He's board certified in internal med medicine and is a diplomat at the American Board of Anti-Aging Medicine. In fact, he'll be at A4M in Vegas this year, along with me in December. In case you're there, please do find us and say hello. Uh, in 1997, he co-founded PhysioAge Medical group where he exclusively practiced age management medicine with a focus on personalized hormone optimization and physiologic age assessment. Uh, you know, you're just a pioneer in this field, Joe. I mean, you've been doing this for a long time and you have a lot to teach us. Uh, since 2009, he's been involved in clinical telomere biology research, and he's published four studies, the effect of oral telomerase activators on normal aging adults. He's lectured nationally and internationally on the clinical application of telomere biology. And in 2015, he founded Raphael Medical Group and blogs regularly about telomere biology, hormone optimization, biomarkers of aging. You can find him at raphaelmedical.com and physioage.com. And all of that information will be over on our show notes. Uh, Dr. Raphael, again, welcome to New Frontiers. Thank you very much, Kara. Uh, great to be on here. Uh, as you said, we always have a great conversation and I'm glad to, happy to share it with your listeners. Yeah. And I just appreciate your commitment to the science. You know, you're always thinking, digging, expanding, and you've been doing this longevity medicine for a long time. You know, it's really popular now. Many, many people are turning their attention towards this. You know, I'm thinking like Altos Laboratory and Bezos, like there's just a lot of attention. Um, oh, and like Saudi Arabia, they're, they're, they're going to be funding their longevity research um, with a billion dollars annually. I mean, it's astonishing. And wow. you've been, I know, and you've just been in this space for a long time and you've got so, so, so much to teach us. So, so you and I have been talking about uh, telomere length. You've been looking at telomeres in your patients along with many other biomarkers for many years uh, to good utility. However, you know, the upstart epigenetic clocks, you know, like we used in our study, and I know that you've been using them, looking at DNA methylation patterns associated with biological aging, um, have really kind of taken over the landscape and telomeres are, perhaps their, their sun is dimmed a little bit. However, I think we don't, we do not want to kick telomeres out of this conversation. They have a place and I just, I want you to talk about it, you know, where they stand in um, their role in um, biology of aging. Yes. Yeah, so, so first I should say, you've got to stop telling people how long I've been doing this. <laughs> <laughs> well, not that you would know by looking at you. You obviously practice what you do. What you do I've been coming up on 63 and I'm getting uh, starting to get a little worried about that. But, um, but thank <laughs> you. Um, uh, yeah. So, you know, the, the virtue or sort of, I guess, the, um, um, of being in the field for as long as I have, is I get to see uh, how things come and go to a certain extent and, and, and how things can be reborn. 
And you're, you're absolutely right. Um, you know, when, when I first started looking at aging, um, it was at the at the sort of uh, challenge of Robert Butler, who was the head of the NIA at the time, the National Institutes of Aging. Uh, and he said, you know, you call yourself an anti-aging physician, Joe. Why? Uh, I mean, how do you know whether or not you're really doing a good job with your patients? And I'm telling about how well they feel and how all the great stuff that they're telling me about uh, and how their friends are saying they look great, et cetera. But he said, what's your metric? You know, what, how are you measuring aging? If you treat high blood pressure, you measure blood pressure. And so that set me on the journey to look at biomarkers of aging. And back then, there are many fewer, uh, almost no uh, molecular markers of aging. So we were looking at things like skin elasticity, um, uh, arterial stiffness, pulmonary function, uh, cognitive function. And there was really large databases of information about how those change characteristically over time. Um, and so then, you know, in the early 2000s, telomere biology started to come on the rise. Um, and, you know, the, the Nobel Prize was given out to, to Elizabeth Blackburn for, for that, uh, for her discovery of the, the role of telomeres uh, in aging and telomerase. Um, and so that was a pretty hot topic back then, as a thought about as being one of the, the big sort of biomarkers of aging, that molecular clock that ticks. But um, the correlation with chronological age wasn't quite, uh, I mean, we thought it was relatively impressive then, maybe an R squared of 0.4, depending on, okay. you know, the study that you're looking at, which is still quite good. You consider a biomarker of aging, even if it's an R squared of 0.1, uh, and perfect correlation is at one. Uh, but then these epigenetic clocks came along and they were, you know, Steve Horbath's original one was correlating at 0.9 and higher. And a few of them were at like one was at 0.98. Yeah. And there was, you know, we're saying, you know, telomeres, telomeres, I don't think I've ever said that word before, but, <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, you know, these, these new clocks are so much better. So, you know, why should we think about telomeres? And I get that, you know, and so many studies were published um, because of the ability to look at epigenetics sort of retrospectively on, on data bank, uh, yeah. banks of samples, um, which you can do with telomeres, but with, I think, one of the sort of the gold standard telomere measurement that I consider flowfish, um, it's a little bit tough. You know, you can't really do that as easily. So with this new biomarker coming out that was so hot, everybody started directing their attention to it. But I think what has happened with that is that we've kind of lost sight about the really pivotal role that telomeres still play in the biology of aging and, and how it actually really um, is still, I think, a linchpin uh, in, in, in the aging process. And you can't ignore it. Yeah. You know, I want to say that when you and I talked early on and I was in the middle of my study and we were looking at, you know, the original Horvath clock because none of the second and third generation clocks were available at that time. But I was all about, um, DNA methylation, uh, epigenetic clocks. And I, at that time, naively thought that they would supplant, you know, telomere measurement. Absolutely. I was convinced. And I, and I, and I look back with a degree of embarrassment <laughs> because they are, telomeres are, telomeres are rich and there's a massive database so much greater than what we've got on, um, epigenetic clocks. And I just, I, I want you to just speak to some of that, like, how are they useful? You know, and how do we want to use telomeres along with um, epigenetic clocks in our clinical practice? Yeah. So, I mean, I think that um, I use as many tools as, as possible. 
I'll say that to, to start it out. But just in terms of telomeres, you're right. The the a number of studies there was a re, it was recently published actually. Uh, I don't remember the exact citation, but there was a, a, a sort of chart of time and number of publications looking at telomeres, epigenetic clocks, composite physical biomarkers. I think one other type of way of measuring aging um, over time. It, you know, uh, uh, the y-axis was the number of publications, and the x-axis was time and you know, telomeres were far greater than any of these other ones in terms of numbers of citations, tens of thousands of them. Um, whereas epigenetic clocks was was lower, but much more, you know, sort of current on on the x-axis. Um, so there's a, there's a whole lot more information out there. I mean, every chronic disease of aging um, has numbers of you know many many papers showing correlations with telomere length mean telomere length and the average telomere length mean or median telomere length um so that it is you know like for instance cardiovascular disease is a nice study by uh, haycock that looks at the the uh the length of telomeres and um in a sort of graded fashion there's an increase in uh cardiovascular risk with the shorter telomere length that, that you have same thing for um for, for actually for cancer uh, and for um, for diabetes, for COPD, uh, so many things, all the chronic diseases of aging have uh, short telomeres as a risk factor for them. And, and you get disease earlier and more severely if you have short telomeres. And the reason for that is because telomeres are sort of what I call your sort of biological 401k. It's how much reserve you have built into your stem cells into your white blood cells and into the tissues, the cells of the tissues that are highly proliferative, like skin and gut, et cetera, that, that um, mm -hmm. to, to, to sort of deal with the slings and arrows that you're exposed to over the course of your lifetime, lifetime or what we, what we call now the exposome, either it's uh, you know, stress, physical, psychological, infectious, viral, uh, bacterial, uh, cancer, uh, you, you name it, anything that causes cells to uh, be stressed to die and then have to be replaced is going to involve telomere biology. Right. If you have really short telomeres, you have less reserve. Just as if you have a really small 401k, your ability to have a nice long retirement living in good fashion, the analogous thing in, in, in life would be a good long health span is going to be shortened because you don't have that, uh, that reserve there. You're going to, you're going to come up short sooner if you don't have the, the longer telomeres. Well let me ask you this okay not to not to bring up the length of time you've been practicing um <laughs> <laughs> anti-aging medicine uh or age management medicine you've been looking at telomeres for a very long time so you've seen thousands of patients you've measured you know multiple uh you know through the course of an, an individual's given treatment you've looked at telomere length and you've changed and you've been able to favorably change it i know that you have and 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 maybe talk a little bit about how you do that but how does it correlate clinically in your you know years of experience yeah so uh i started measuring telomere lengths uh, in a sort of a cohort study here that we published two papers off of uh in 2007 we started the cohort study published papers in 2013 11 and 13 um, and we looked at a group of people, measured multiple biomarkers from the sort of organismal level to the organ level, to the tissue level, to the molecular level, and telomeres being one of them, immune system function being, being another sort of prominent one. Uh, and so over the course of uh, the last, uh, say, 15 years or so, I've been, uh, well, 12 years, I guess, um, been in looking at telomere length and, and 
a good majority of my patients. It's a not inexpensive test. I don't necessarily run it in all my patients. And some of my patients are, are on the younger side as well. Um, but so I've looked at probably over, well, over 2000 telomere length measurements and, and many of them in, in longitudinally over a decade in some patients, even longer in, in patients like myself. Um, so you get an idea about what, uh, what information telomere length gives you. And I would say that at this point, uh, a really good analogy would be telomere lengths to cholesterol. And in 2011, I blogged a little piece about telomeres being the next cholesterol. And I sort of opined at that point that because of all this, the data that was out there correlating chronic disease and particularly cardiovascular disease with cholesterol, you know, shortened telomeres being almost as big a risk factor, uh, if not slightly bigger than, than just total cholesterol for cardiovascular disease risk, I opine that we would be doing it as regularly in patients as um, as we do cholesterol now. And, um, you know, it's now whatever, 11 years later, and we're still not doing it as regularly. And I think one of the reasons is uh, that I think telomere, median telomere length is sort of like total cholesterol. While it is at the extremes, definitely uh, indicative of increased risk with high cholesterol and increased risk with very, very short telomeres and decreased risk with longer telomeres and with really, really low cholesterol. Um, but there's no, it's not as sort of granular uh, uh, a test as we would like it to be. Mm. So for instance, in, in lipid biology, now we look at LDL, not just total cholesterol, because somebody's total cholesterol would be very high if their HDL is very high and their cardiovascular risk is not that bad or is actually is, is relatively low. Um, but now we look at things like LDL. Then we look after that at to get more granular at uh, LDL particle size to okay. look at, you know, the small dense LDL. And then we looked at things like lipoprotein little a, which is, you know, sort of one of the major, the biggest risk factors for, um, for cardiovascular disease, probably the biggest one in lipids. Uh, and we haven't, we have, while well, we have that technology um, in research to look at things like the critically short telomere um, or break it down between the different kinds of blood cells that we're looking at telomeres in, not just the generic right. white blood cells. Um, that's available. And I think it gives us much more information. Clinically, that's not available yet. Uh, a couple of places do 20th percentile uh, telomere length, which is a little bit better, but correlates pretty closely with median telomere length. So so I think that, um, you know, the reason I get it in everybody is because if you have really, really short telomeres, that's something you want to know. Um, and if you have really long telomeres, that's great. I mean, it doesn't mean you should go out there and smoke and drink and not exercise, but but it means that you have a, a sort of probably a degree of, uh, of cushion for, uh, for, for losing telomere length that you don't have otherwise. So, um, you know, and I've seen this in my practice. I've seen 50, 60 year olds come in with telomere lengths of a 20 year old because they won the telomere lottery. Telomeres, by the way, are highly heritable, um, about 70% uh, heritable, uh, you're even a little bit higher than huh, that. Um, yeah, I mean, very, very heritable. And, and, uh, um, and likewise, I've seen uh, young people, you know, I had a 39-year-old who came in with telomere length of a seven-year-old. She didn't know that. She had a little bit of premature graying uh, and, and the family, strong family history of cardiovascular disease. But putting that, you know, giving people that information uh, is, I think, helpful. And that also allows us to interpret some of the other biomarkers that we do as well. Um, so, yeah. So, I mean, I think that's kind of where I would put it at this point. Um, I think you're right. The the latest kid on the block, the epigenetic clocks have, and, and now, you know, the metabolome and the proteome, yes. which is becoming more more available is, is probably going to start to uh, to maybe supplant even potentially some of these clocks, or at least 
give them a little bit of a run for their money. Um, but, um, you know, I think that the, the key take home that I have from looking at all these biomarkers of aging and patients over the years is that all of them give very good and important information. None of them is the end all and be all. The, yes. there is, I don't think there's, there's, you've heard me say this before, and I'm going to repeat it. I think, you know, your other guests, Dr. Levine would, would also agree. There's no single perfect biomarker of aging um, because aging occurs at different rates between individuals, within individuals in different tissues, yes. different organ systems. I'll have a patient come in, and this is more the norm. Uh, we look at nine major biomarkers for aging from lungs to, to, to arteries, to cognitive function, brain, to skin, uh, to body composition, and then on down to the telomeres and epigenetic clocks. And, and we've talked about glycan age before for immune system, um, inflammatory potential. Patients can be 10, 15, even 20 or 30 years below their chronological, chronological age on one of them and the opposite on another one of them. And patients are like, and, and this can happen with multiple different ones. It's rare that you come in with somebody that has that's 50 years old and all of them are within five years of their chronological age. And patients will say, well, you know, what does that mean? I mean, does that mean that these are just junk and they're, they don't, they're not right? They're, you know, they're telling me, they're giving me bad information. Which one of these is right? Of course, they want to choose the ones that are younger. That's the right, right ones for them. Um, but no, the answer is really that, yes, your lungs were not endowed with as much reserve capacity as your arteries were. That's just you genetically and what's been happening to you over the course of your life. That could be the case for somebody who runs and smokes, okay? Right. So their lungs are not doing as well from the smoking, but they're keeping their arteries a little bit healthier uh, from, the, from, the, from the running. I mean, it is really a combination of all these things that you see, which then allows you to target your interventions toward the organ system um, that is, you know, most in need of, of care. Now, Turns out that a lot of these things have beneficial effects in multiple different organs, just as bad habits have deleterious effects in multiple different organs. But seeing that that whole range of different, um, uh, of, you know, biomarkers of aging being high and low, that's the norm. Uh, and I can yes. say that with some confidence, having you know looked at, I now have hundreds of patients with, you know, the full panoply of biomarkers done on them, and you really see that uh, that that's that is the norm. That's a that's just a really great, very, very uh, well-stated kind of explanation of your clinical experience. Of course, we're looking at clocks these days. We're looking at multiple clocks when we order them um, from True Diagnostic. And I know everyone wants to focus on the one that's the youngest and sort of rest there. But to your point, you know, we need to look at all of this information and drill down and work on our given areas of imbalance, you know, and, and I appreciate you saying that you, know, you don't see all of the biomarkers as uniformly very young or uniformly very old. It's always a mix. I think that's underlying exclamation point, really important point. By the way, you know, the third generation DNA methylation clock is um, the pace of aging. Mm -hmm. And there, that's a compilation of biomarkers, most, or maybe not most, but a lot of them, actually, maybe most, I'd have to do a side by side checklist of what you're already looking at in your practice. It's pretty close, yeah. From the from the uh, the Neiden, um cohort, uh, uh, yeah. So that's the thing that I that I would say, and that you know I, I think uh, you know Morgan and Levine also talks about is that you know the the um, the pheno age, and then add to that blood pressure and pulmonary function, and some of the other things they looked at into Neiden, 
uh, mm-hmm. to, to need cohort hemoglobin A1C. Um, you know, those that clock's about as good in terms of predicting health outcomes and mortality as these other ones that correlate with chronological age much more highly. Because, you know, correlating, correlating perfectly with chronological age is useless. I mean, right. then you just use chronological age. Uh, it's the, it's the, the difference between chronological age above or below the, you know, the age acceleration when it's above and deceleration when it's below, that's important. Yes. And that's what that new clock, the pace of aging clock is, is uh, that third generation clock is picking up. And it's, it's a, it's a really interesting tool. I mean, I think it needs, as all these clocks do more validation with actual markers from, you know, from practices like mine and, or other, uh, other cohorts mm-hmm. um, so that you know what to do with it. I found it really fascinating in, in this paper that just came out um, by, you know, the clock mavens themselves, Steve Horvath. And it was uh, the first author was uh, Sylvia Kabasik. Uh, that's how you spell it. But, and, and, you know, it was a paper looking at um, human uh, tissues in vitro and, and looking at the hallmarks of aging very closely and looking at the epigenetic clocks using the skin and blood clock. And I won't go through all the details, but what he said in the end was that, you know, this clock correlated very nicely with nutrient sensing, one of the hallmarks of aging or deregulated nutrient sensing, depending on which nomenclature you want to use, mitochondrial function, stem cell exhaustion, and um, altered cell communication or intercellular communication. But it did not seem to correlate at all in these tissue experiments. And they were very controlled, very, very elegantly done studies with genomic instability, telomere attrition, or cellular senescence, two, three of the big you know, uh-huh. major players. And they, and they admit at the very beginning of the paper that telomere attrition and cellular senescence are, cellular senescence are absolutely major factors in the aging process. Yeah. Um, and so what he said at the end was, you know, look, we, we had this initial excitement about these clocks has been a little bit tinged about by, by this question of what does it mean when you have the clock uh, giving you this this information. What does it mean when you change this? Now, yes, there, there is correlation with um, multiple different outcomes, and there's been validation sets that have been done. And you know, I don't think it's just like gray hair that's sort of there, tracks along with time, but doesn't really mean anything. Absolutely not. That's absolutely not the case. But this change in epigenetic landscape, the uh, in DNA methylation that takes place, you know, what they what he says in this study that is. Not whereas you might think it's actually change in actual CPGs along the deep uh, methylation of CPGs along the DNA, but what what he thinks he's picking up more from these elegant clone studies is that it's a change in the cellular composition of that tissue. Now think about that. I mean, that's a big statement from the epigenetic clock guy. Yeah. Um, You know, it's not actually that the that the DNA methylation pattern is changing, or at least we haven't been able to measure that at the single cell level, but it's that the tissue, it might have some stem cells in it that has, um, that have you know, younger epigenetic age versus some uh, exhausted T cells. If you're looking at, uh, uh, at peripheral, you know, the, the white blood cells, not, not an actual tissue. Um, and it's, and, and looking at the composition of the tissue that you're looking at, that's actually very close to what's happening with telomere biology, where, looking at the you're looking at white blood cells okay so you can maybe break it down into granulocytes and lymphocytes now if you use flowfish um but all lymphocytes are not the same you know b cells have longer telomere length than um 
that you know affect our memory cells that have been around, you know, working on fighting off viruses, et cetera. And naive T cells have longer ones. So the composition of the of the lymphocytes in your circulate in your circulation is really what you need to look at. To look at actual change in telomere length, you need to look at just the naive T cells, just the senescent uh, 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 suppressor cells. And I was really shocked and amazed by the parallel between what Horvath was saying about epigenetic clocks and the tissue composition and what's been known and better appreciated about um, telomere length. So maybe this is gonna start coming around again if the technology becomes available for looking at single cell telomere length. It's available, I mean, it's called Stella. Um, it's available, but just in a research setting. And if we can get those available, then we'll be able to be able to see uh, and have another clinical tool sort of akin to LP little a and its improvement in prediction um, over total cholesterol. No, that's pretty interesting. I mean, I, I just, yeah. And, and, and clearly the price will need to, you know, yeah, drop down to for sure. yeah. <laughs> be commensurate with lipids. That would be amazing and covered by insurance, but yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I'm, I'm all for that. So I just, I have a couple of thoughts on what you've just said. The first one is, you know, and folks, yes, the uh, links to these papers will be in our show notes, so you can go and grab that 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 Horvath, Horvath um, March twenty twenty two paper. Um, so the first kind, the is is that is that the paper you just referenced? Uh, Excuse me, May May twenty. Yeah, May. Well, it was June is the actual, but online was May, right? Okay, okay. Um, the first thing is, uh, continue with our broad clinical investigations that we do on every patient. Uh, don't lean into one uh, biomarker associated with biological age as your as your primary um, investigation. So blood pressure matters, lipids matter. You know, the beautiful lipid panels we're able to access these days, CRP, et cetera. Mm -hmm. You know, grip strength, you know, just sure. all of the all of the all of our our tried and true biomarkers continue to be very important. And I think, you know, what you've just said hits that home. But the other piece that I want to ask you is this paper seems to suggest that these changes to the methylome, to the DNA methylome, are response to cellular environment changes versus drivers of the cellular aging. I mean, is that what you glean from the paper? Is that... Well, it's a, it's a well so it's an interesting paper because it's it's a it's a it's a very dense and and uh, obviously it was a huge amount of work to do they they when you say environment what they did was it was it was in, all in vitro uh and they sub subjected um the um the cells to uh, either control medium or then irradiation to look at genomic instability um then to factors that cause cells to go into senescence um, through stress, uh, it was a RAS uh, oncogene stress, and then they also let oh, another one of the, uh, the the cell populations go through just replicative senescence, where they just doubled and doubled and doubled. So you have the three different ways in which you can cause cellular senescence and cellular aging. And what they found was that so that's that's sort of the environment that you're talking about. It wasn't actual an actual cellular environments, the kind of stresses that cause cells to, to age from either senescent standpoint, telomere attrition standpoint. And what they found, which was really, really fascinating, was that the epigenetic clock ticked along um, 
even reflecting it, the changes. It, right, right, exactly. Unless, um, uh, you know, like particularly in a replicative aging one, yes, there was, there was, there was, you know, the epigenetic clock was was ticking along, but um, in the ones that were just in vitro that had had been subjected to just uh, you know, like a week, or I forget how many days it was of of um, of irradiation. Which caused a lot of, you know, "quote unquote" aging of the telomeres and, and drove senescence. It didn't actually age the epigenetic clock. So, what's actually happening? Uh, uh, which is really the yeah. fascinating thing. I think the take home for me from all this and what I've been from what I've been reading is that aging is getting more complicated. I mean, we knew it was complicated. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> but but now we're now we know enough to know that it's even more complicated than we thought it was. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's definitely complicated you know, squared, logarithmic. <laughs> um, but listen, so they only looked at skin and blood clock, though. Is that right? I mean, the, why didn't the, they look at the other clocks? Yeah, I think they they, they said that they uh, settled on it, I think because it was um, that it outperformed uh, the other epigenetic clocks in, in its reliability in in, in vitro experiments. Oh, okay. Okay. So they didn't get to, because, you know, all the clocks are looking at different CPGs. That's, I mean, there's some overlap. That's absolutely right. Sure. Absolutely okay. true. All right. So that's yeah. interesting. Well, here's the, I have. All right. So then the other, my other question, and this, you know, I want to talk about root cause aging or upstream cause of aging and kind of circle back over to telomeres. But I also want to bring up um, David Sinclair's work uh, using Yamanaka factors, which directly uh, address epigenetic changes. I mean, that's how you, you know, in, create, uh, inducible pluripotent stem cells, you know, you layer the transcription factor, Yamanaka factors onto them. Um, so in their lab, they created aging, they created an aging model in mice, and then they reversed it using Yamanaka factors. And they did this in, you know, in mice themselves. And they also did this in an optic neuropathy that they created. So they basically made aging in the eyes and in, you know, the and, and in mice and, uh, and through uh, epigenetic manipulation, and then reverse that using Yamanaka factor. So that would suggest in a way to me that these changes to DNA methylation and other, other epigenetic processes are really kind of root, root cause. And then all the cellular stuff is downstream and that would include telomeres. But what I'm hearing you say is that, you know, maybe not, or maybe it's a combination, you know, and, and there's the, and, and the epigenetic changes are response to, you know, changes to the cellular environment, which makes sense. It really makes sense. But so my question, so I want to hear what your thoughts are on what I've just put out to you. And then I also want to see like where on the, where, where is telomere dysfunction in, in terms of root, root cause um, of aging or upstream cause of aging? Yeah. So I, I haven't read, I mean, I've heard of those papers. But I haven't read them in detail, so I don't know the the details of them. I, I always, always been concerned about using Yamanaka factors and people thinking of them as, as sort of age reversal. I mean, I'm, I think the more as de-differentiation factors rather than actual age reversal, because you're taking a cell from a differentiated state and moving it back into uh, a pluripotent state. But you can control that though. So that's what they did. They didn't use, right. they think they used three of the four and they didn't, you know, they didn't bring it all the way back to pluripotent stem cell status. You know, they clearly right. stopped. Okay, go ahead. And, and so I think, I think, you know, that, there are many different ways to skin the aging cat is what I, what I would say, what I'd say from that. Cause I'm thinking about, um, you know, for instance, they did sort of a similar thing from a telomere standpoint in uh, Ron DePino's studies when he was at Harvard in 2011. And they took a mouse that was a knockout mouse for, uh, I believe it was TERT. Um, 
telomerase, uh, an aspect of telomerase, and then um, allowed it to age more rapidly. And then because of the, the way in which they set it up, giving them a molecule that happened to be tamoxifen uh, to turn, turn it back on, caused actual reversal of aging. I mean, the gray hair, the mm -hmm. shrunken testicles, the smaller brain, the smaller spleen, the fur, the skin, the, the subcutaneous fat, all went back to a younger mouse. That is age reversal, no question yeah. about it. Yeah. Um, and you know, I would love to have have that have that that same experiment repeated, looking at the epigenetic clocks of, of various tissues and of white blood cells in these animals to see what's actually has what, what took place. Did he have accelerated epigenetic aging with the lack of telomerase that brought the aging phenotype? And then when you turned on telomerase again, did you get a you know reversal of that epigenetic aging? I mean, what what Horvath's paper says suggests is that that wouldn't necessarily take place um, based on his this, these in vitro studies. But it's more complicated than that because we're now, you know, I'm learning, maybe other people knew for a while, but I'm learning that all of these things interact in very complicated ways. Um, from his lab, uh, uh, Sahim has looked at the relationship between mitochondria, telomeres, and sirtuins and the mm -hmm. NAD metabolome. And it turns out that, you know, when they're, they're intimately linked, if you get damage to the, to DNA, which turns on the DNA damage response, um, either through replicative senescent short telomeres or through um, uh, just stress like irradiation on the telomeres, even, a, even in a post-mitotic cell, then you turn on the DNA damage response, you turn on P53, which then turns down the master mitochondrial biogenesis regulators, PCG1, alpha, and beta. And that then causes an increase in uh, reactive oxygen species. You get uh, cells that can't you know, divide and, and don't have good energetics. Um, and that, that in turn causes problems with sirtuins. Um, the sirtuins then, the metabol the NAD levels go down and the sirtuins, which are important for maintaining telomere health, can actually get repressed by PGC1, uh, PGC1 alpha and beta. Uh, and you get uh, sort of a, a, a vicious cycle where that gets worse and worse. Interestingly, if you give NAD in that model and, and once they've gotten short telomeres, then you can slow down that process, stabilize telomeres, and then you know prevent the fibrosis of the liver that takes place in that model system that huh. occurs if you don't have that. So there's... Uh, you know, a number of different ways that you can sort of turn things back depending on which which one's gone awry. I think they're all interrelated. And so, you know, I'm not surprised about, you know, the results that you were talking about. And and, and I just think there's different ways that you can go about it, but that's what makes it complicated um, because you have to apply the right intervention in the right circumstance. Which which problem is it? Is it short telomeres? Is it, is it mitochondrial dysfunction? Or is it uh, the fact that you know NAD is being chewed up by you know macrophages, you know upregulation of CD38. It's a it's a it's a number of different things that take place. And so as a clinician, that's when I step back and I say, you know, when people are like, oh, let's take rapamycin or let's take NAD or let's take you know a telomerase activator, just because it's been good in some animal models and maybe it shows some correlation in in observational studies in humans. In the individual that's about to consider doing that, is that the right intervention? Well, you don't know unless you measure these things and take a look and see. Um, and that's where, where where I think you know 
clinical longevity medicine, which I guess is the latest term that we use for what I do, right, um, right. Uh, gets, uh, you know, st- is, is put to work uh, at, at looking at these markers and trying to figure out what is the right, uh, what is the right way to go about it. For instance, you know, very, uh, uh, I'm very grateful that you did this when you were too busy with your book, I think, and we had that meeting with uh, Sapir Bio. Right. Um, and uh, they had a new test to look at uh, another way of looking at senescent cell burden. And so we started a um, an IRB registry here to look at uh, patients in our practice getting this test, um, which looks at P16, which okay. is a cell cycle um, inhibitor that um, you know is sort of thought to be one of the major markers for senescence, although there is no single major marker for determining whether a cell is senescent or not, senescent or not. Certainly this is a, a, one of the top markers. Um, and we look at that, and then we look at a couple other things that balance these balancing factors, whether or not the cells have a lot of proliferation taking place, We're looking at CD28, whether or not they have, they're exhausted, uh, looking at another marker called LAG3, and looking at whether there's a lot of autophagy inhibition, which is sort of a marker for whether there's high mTOR activity. And we've gone through about 50 patients at this point, uh, and looking at the results and the algorithm based on sort of the model that we have of what's going on with these markers and how they are informed by clinical studies, is that about 10 or 15% of the patients really should try to avoid rapamycin um, because they don't have a lot of senescent cells. And their and senescence is, is, you know, senescent cells aren't all bad. They're, it's a, they're the major tumor suppressor mechanism. Right. So those people could be at increased risk for um, cancer and cardiovascular disease. I'll talk about why cardiovascular disease if you want me to, but certainly cancer because they don't get enough senescence going on. Um, right. They have some probably some mutations in the promoter to P16 that doesn't allow them to turn on appropriately the cell cycle inhibitor when the cell is pretty damaged. Likewise, there's people who are, you know, like get that person on rapamycin. <laughs> They've got a lot of uh, autophagy inhibition, got a huge burden of senescent cells. But if you're just out there thinking, you know, I read in, you know, the latest or heard in the latest podcast that rapamycin is the next best thing since sliced bread to keep me alive longer, that may not be the case for you. Right. Um, right. God, that's really interesting. So, um, all right. So then, I mean, you probably don't have anything that you can report on this observation clinically. You, know, you mean in terms of not using it, using it or not using it, given right? The no, we phenotype. only we've only just been. We just took a while to get the RB up and going. We have fifty yeah. people, and we've gotten baselines. Not everybody. I mean, I'd say I have about eight, nine people now who started rapamycin, um, and I have just a couple that are cooking with their follow-up tests. So I don't have results to report on that How are you? Yet. How are you dosing the rapamycin? Uh, we're doing um, four to six milligrams, depending on size, uh, once a week okay. or eight weeks. Okay. Uh, so- which is sort of, you know, in the ballpark of what a number of other studies have done. Yes. Um, you know, six is the number. Some some go to eight, some four. Um, I know other people have used, you know, one milligram daily, but I think the thought is that... Uh, yeah. that the pulse and with the half-life of rapamycin, you want to go to drug-free after you know a week until you start your next dose. All right. So that was just, I, I'm just really appreciating your work here. A um, couple of questions. One, you've got the, um, you worked on developing a 
kind of an AI um, system for, 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 for tracking all of the various biomarkers. Isn't that correct? And are you using that? Or what, and well, yeah. So, I mean, I, I, you're referring to PhysioAge um, Health Analytics, which is like my little baby. Yeah. <laughs> um, what's going on with that? And are you inputting all of this massive? Yes. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's the thing. So, um, you know, hearkening back to this whole idea started with Bob Butler is that, you know, really can't practice personalized uh, evidence-based at that time, anti-aging medicine, unless you're measuring what you're doing and you're measuring the effects of what you're doing. Um, the data that came out of the cohort trials that we did sort of was really interesting in terms of um, these biomarkers and how they correlated with age. And so uh, along with a, a Stanford PhD in, uh, in uh, genome technology, uh, Jochen Kuhn and, and my, my one of my colleagues at the time, an MBA, Jerry Fortunato, we started this company to, to help doctors in my field measure on a personal and granular level the aging process in their patients so they could tell them whether or not their interventions were working. That in a nutshell is the mission of PhysioAge Health Analytics. But for the individual, what the idea is, is to be able to, um, you know, get as close, uh, I'm sorry, not, not the image, we talked about the individual, it, really the idea, the other sort of benefit of it is that this is all being collected into a single database. We have right. 60 sites using it around the world at various places. Um, and so uploading all that data into one system as, uh, allows the, each of the practices to see, you know, how well they're doing in their population, and then also to show each individual how well they're doing. Um, and then we have this massive database of uh, that's growing. I mean, massive is it, it's a it's a unique database in that the the sort of comp, the the uh, what's the word the complexity of the tests that we're doing you know the glycan age the DNA methylation the the telomeres etc is not done on you know individuals a lot of individuals in in, in I think any databases that I know of right now right um, I would not say that we're yet doing any AI on it. We have, we're collecting data. We have algorithms in there that help the doctors sort of think about things like if X, Y, and Z are true about your patient, then you might want to think about this. Um, but we don't yet have, um, we're not you know, making uh, true AI uh, biostatisticians, uh, bioinformatics types of, uh, of work on it. But um, I am collaborating with Glycan Age uh, in a, in a, early study to to look at the effect of what we're doing on on the glycan age and we've sent some uh, some data into true diagnostics that I know you've worked with to uh to see what's what's happening with body composition uh from our database to, to add to some other databases uh, to see how uh, epigenetics can can predict uh body composition so um trying to you know contribute to the to the greater knowledge but while at the same time helping patients uh, and practices understand you know what they're doing with their with their patients and, and how well they're performing. Our in the show notes, we'll put in contact information. So if clinicians want to participate with PhysioAge, they can um, they can access it. They can access you and 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 use it. Is that possible? Yeah, that'd be great. I mean, we're uh -huh. always looking to to you know increase the number of doctors. And you know, I like to think of PhysioAge while it's not a a full blown medical record, and at some point it may be. May have to be, um, but it's really. I created it because it's what I needed to 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 practice the kind of medicine I want to practice. It's, it's for me, it's the true meaningful use, because I can look at 
I mean, I'm using it every day with my patients. I can at a, just at a glance, look at all these markers and see how interventions have, have affected each of them, you know, individually and, and, um, and in groups of them so that I know. Uh, and then I can also look at my whole practice and say, oh, you know, I'm doing a pretty good job with getting hemoglobin A1Cs down. Um, the average person in my practice has a glycan age that's 15 years younger if they're a female and 25 years younger if they're a male. And, you know, what can I do to improve that? And, and who are the ones that aren't doing as well and why are they not doing as well? Hmm. And if there's some new technology that I've read about, I can at a glance, uh, well, not a glance, but a quick, uh, you know, keystroke or two, uh, look for people who fit the criteria that might benefit from that new approach, either, you know, lifestyle, diet, pharmaceutical supplement. Uh, and so that's, um, that's what I think, you know, the, e the EHR uh, should be doing for, for doctors yes. and patients, not it's what not. it's currently doing. Right, right. <laughs> right. Man, that is so, so, so interesting. God, I want to, uh, I'd love to do a webinar with you on it, you know, and just really walk through. Yeah, that'd be great. That'd be fun. Wouldn't that be, wouldn't that be so cool? Mm -hmm. So everybody wants to know, you know, there's a lot of clinicians listening to this podcast, but of course there are a lot of just savvy, you know, consumers who want to get ahead of the curve. I, I, I mean, what, so, so you're really individualizing uh, based on, you know, the, the myriad tools that you're using to work up individuals, but there are core products that you're going to time and again. So now I'm going to just kind of <laughs> mm -hmm. put you on the spot. Like what are the interventions that you're finding most people respond to regardless of, you know, their phenotype? Yeah. So you're, what's, what's the term you're asking me what my stack is or <laughs> what, <laughs> what, what, uh, what I prescribe for patients. Well, you know, look, it's, it's, it is, as I as I mentioned, it's it's depends on where you are in the aging process, yeah. uh, and that really can be very different from your chronological age, uh, and 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 different from your chronological age in one system versus another, and so I want that information. Um, I mean, look, you know, I do a lot of hormone optimization, and what I'm fascinated by is how these new technologies for measuring aging are really validating that hormone optimization is anti-aging. I mean, it's yes. really it's really crazy how the epigenetic clocks are showing that menopause accelerates uh, aging by these epigenetic clocks, and that yes. uh, you know, premature menopause does, surgical menopause does, and then people yeah. on H on HRT decelerates it. Um, you know, likewise with the new, probably the newest one, which is the glycan age. I mean, yeah, you see people with low estradiol levels, be they male or female, um, their glycan age is going to be higher, even if they're you know they're doing good things with body composition, et cetera. So. I look at that because that I'm still, you know, I will never stop being fascinated by how important, how much effect hormones have on, on, on uh, individuals, how they feel, how they function and how they age. Um, that being said, there's many other things to do along with it. I mean, well, it's, I mean, how often are you using T TA 65? Like I'm, I'm a fan of it and I haven't actually measured my, t I've, I've looked at my T, my, the DNA methylation telomere clock, right. but I haven't measured them directly. Shame um, on you, Tara. You gotta, <laughs> gotta come here. We'll send you a kit. I know, we'll I know, I know, I know. I need to come there. I know. I was supposed to go there at IHS, and then I don't right. know, something, yeah, something, something happened. happened. Um, <laughs> I know. I need to go there. I would. Um, I would probably have every one of my patients on TA sixty five for the cost. Um, so I try to do it. Uh, you know, I say to patients, I give them a sort of continuum. 
after we measure the telomeres, and also we look at the senescent cell burden from a um, from a lymphocyte subset standpoint. That if you have a lot of CD28 negative uh, suppressor T cells, then you know you're you're you probably have a lot of senescent cells. You have a lot of a burden of the you know, sort of viral uh, burden, and and your immune system is not going to be functioning as well. It's going to put you at increased risk of severe COVID. Um, and so, um, you know, I will say, you know, you really want to get on that. And, and if you have to drop something else to get on that, you should get on it. Mm -hmm. Other patients are sort of, depending on their age, if they're 60, 70, 80, you know, their telomeres aren't going to be as long as they used to be. It's good to, to get on it under those circumstances. And then, as I said, there's young, there are young patients who, who have telomeres of a 70 year old. And, and once you measure that, uh, it's important that, that they uh, try to do the most they can to keep them from getting shorter. And I have many patients who have stable telomere length over a decade, hasn't gone down. I have a number that have gone up, some that have gone down, but you know, perhaps I, mean, I think probably less rapidly than they would have otherwise. Right. So I, I certainly, certainly do that. I mean, there's some other interesting studies that show that it's not just the critically short telomere or even the mean telomere length that is the most important thing because there's this phenomenon called telomere looping over long distances where, you know, to have a telomere long enough way before you're going to cause a cell cycle arrest or senescence because of short telomeres, that when it gets a little bit short, it can now no longer loop back up to 15 base pairs from uh, megabase pairs from, from the telomere to turn on or uh, to, you know, to turn on or turn off a gene. Um, and so, uh, you know, you could argue that there's perhaps a, an optimal telomere length for each person uh, and mm. that uh, letting it get shorter might not, you know, keeping it from getting shorter, even, you know, in your twenties or, or perhaps even younger might be beneficial. Now, I don't recommend that just yet, um, but I could see theoretically how that might be a way to go uh, because of you know, the importance of, it's not just a ticking clock. It does things like re regulates your epigenome, gets regulated by your epigenome. Also, um, you know, is a marker, is a sort of barometer of oxidative stress. Telomeres, I think you asked earlier, how upstream are they? I would oh. say they're pretty much at the top of the upstream. And that's oh. why they're in the top three of the hallmarks of aging, along with uh, genomic instability and epigenetics. Um, those are the top, you know, the, sort of the top three. The top players. Um yeah, I'm I'm bullish on on TA65. I think it's doing, you know, the focus is on on its its influence of telomerase. But you know, I think I think if if hopefully they're doing you and you would know if they're looking at epigenetic changes and not just the clock. There's a heck of a lot more going on than just the various CPGs selected to you know d uh, demonstrate biological age that we can look at. Um, and we will eventually publish on some of those those other findings. Um, Oh, in interesting. You're looking at them now? That's great. Yeah, yeah. We we profoundly changed um, promoter region methylation in our study uh, population, big time, um, as compared to controls. And and kind of in, in towards a healthier pattern. Um, so gene body methylation tends to uh, drop in the aging journey and promoter region tends to become hypermethylated. So genes are turned off, but then these mm -hmm. crazy, you know, gene bodies like oncogenes and so forth tend to get turned on. Um, and we were able to shift that. So I need to do a drill down into exploring the various genes we shifted it on, but um, it's, yeah, it's, it's a paper that I would, that I would love to write. But before we do that, we're actually publishing on a, a, a case series of, of women who finished our program. Um, oh, so that's first. Yeah, it's pretty exciting. It's it, and and the, the the pace of aging has been um, 
respond, you know, our interventions have, have shown response in the pace of aging clock, which is pretty cool. Um, so yeah, so TA65, I, I, I just, I think it's an important compound and something that I've been taking in the morning for probably since we started talking, I don't know, maybe before then. Um, we're, we're wrapping up. I feel like we could talk for another hour. I want to ask you just about, about NAD and whether that's kind of a workhorse supplement in your practice for many individuals. Are you being more select in who you prescribe it to? Um, and then beyond that, my, I just want to ask you any, any final comments. I know we were going to chat about COVID um, and, and CMV and, and, you know, the relationship to uh, telomere length, but whatever you want. So NAD and then, you know, final thoughts for our podcast today. Well, great. Yeah. So NAD uh, is something that, uh, you know, you know, one of the hot substances obviously out there, yes. and particularly because of David Sinclair's yes. uh, popularization of it in his book. And, and then, you know, there's a lot of very valid science. And as I mentioned, some interesting studies about, you know, su um, supplementing with NAD, you know, Overriding this uh, this problem with the short telomeres yeah. uh, and stabilizing them by by you know helping the sirtuins again because they're you know sirtuins are NAD dependent uh, enzymes. Um, but uh, for me, again, back to my whole sort of mantra, which is if you can't measure it, don't mess with it. Um, I didn't didn't really know you know who was NAD. I mean, obviously, on average, an older person is going to be more NAD deficient than another. Um, but I kind of shied away from it. Um, but there is a company now that uh, called Genfinity that um, measures intracellular NAD levels. Uh, and I'm starting to get results back on patients and see, you know, those that are low uh, and supplementing with NAD and trying to get their levels up. But we're still in the early, early stages of that. Okay. I think that uh, it's really a, an interesting area, particularly with some of this research showing how Inter interrelated all of these metabolic uh, and epigenetic pathways are and how telomeres are also at the, at the heart of them that I think what we're really going to be looking at is turning the dials on, on all these different um, sort of substances to try to get the right combination in the right person. And that's where I think at some point, you know, the kinds of AI that you were talking about, we're going to be okay. doing on, on, on our on our database to sort of figure out, you know, what is, what's the correct way of making these. What about so yeah, so a surrogate marker of NAD would be looking at you know various Krebs cycle intermediates, you know maybe lactate, pyruvate, mm -hmm. etc. I mean, are you doing that? Would would you would you use that as a suggestion that NAD might be beneficial in a person? I mean, I think you could do that. I'm I'm not doing metabolomics like that just yet, uh, um, just because there's only one of me, unfortunately. And I, what do you mean? <laughs> um, you know, I, and I do think that, that that could be another way of looking at it. I mean, I, I'm waiting to see how well this Genfinity um, uh, test performs and, and whether there's clinical correlations with it. Um, because, it, you know, if, if it does perform well, which I think so far it looks like it is, uh, then, then, we can, then we can dose based on that and we can see if uh, a person that goes from a low level to a, you know, an optimal level for seeing changes in, in other areas of their biomarkers. That would be really, really, really interesting to do. Um, you know, in terms of the, the, the other stuff, um, the CMV and, and COVID, I think that uh, I do uh, get CMV titers in everybody because I think it is very important to see what effect it's having, whether or not uh, you're going to be at risk for more severe COVID. People who have high CMV titers or are CMV positive, even if they're young, and you know, we're seeing more and more young people uh, getting sort of 
some, some relatively significant disease. It's not just a linear increase from young age to old age. Um, there, you know, there's definitely younger people, but that's probably because their immune systems are not the same as their age as their chronological age is, and that they actually have older immune systems that have senesced because of uh, because of CMV and because of the effect that CMV can have on you know shortening telomere length. Uh, and then, you know, the other thing that there was that interesting paper that came out about looking at telomere lengths to see, you know, uh, by Aviv modeling it. And if you're in the <laughs> bottom 10th percentile, then, you know, you run out of telomere reserve to mount an effective response in your, from your naive T cells and your effective memory cells. And that, you know, is something if, if telomere length testing was 50 bucks, I would say everybody should do that uh, to try to know, <laughs> you know, where they are uh, in, in their, in their risk taking. Um, so, you know, it's what what I what my takeaway message is that this field that I chose to go into, as you say, long ago, <laughs> <laughs> was probably the best decision I ever made in my life because it's um, you know I love what I do. It's uh, okay. fascinating um, seeing how all the science is starting to make sense. All the different ways we look at aging are sort of coming together. Yeah, uh, with still lots of conundrums out there yeah. to figure out, but um, but I think you know we're 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 going in the right direction. We're keeping the body as healthy as possible. That's why I call call physioage, physioage health analytics. How healthy are you in comparison to the possible in comparison to how what's the most the the optimal health that you could have? And if you're deviating away from that, what can we do to bring you back to that? Well, Dr. Raphael, as usual, it's just been a great time talking to you. I mean, you're just so brilliant and you've got your head wrapped around this in such an elegant way. And you've got your clinical experience um, to always bring it home. Uh, and I think as much as I love these amazing, you know, biogerontologists uh, who are teaching and, and really doing the deep investigation into the biomarkers of aging, it's, you know, the people who are sitting with with the individuals and actually enacting these interventions and paying careful attention, such as yourself. I mean, you're really kind of, you're a leader here, um, is really distinguishes what's going to work and what isn't going to work and what, what we should be doing. So you're playing an incredibly important uh, role in, in this whole uh, work that we're doing right now. And I agree with you, we are at a pivotal time. It's very, very exciting. It is really new. We're cutting the edge in a lot of ways, but we're also, you know, dancing on a bigger, more solid edge, I think, than we ever have. And it's 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 just an exciting time to be practicing this medicine. So again, thank uh, you so much. You're welcome. That is very well put. And uh, you're making me blush, but <laughs> thank you very much. <laughs> it's, it's great to, always great to be on your, your show. I'm glad that you're, you have this platform to, to get this information out there. And you always ask great questions and have great guests. So well, um, I really want to do, and people just comment on this. Wouldn't you love to do a webinar? with Dr. Raphael and just look at PhysioAge and, and what it's about. Oh my God. You know, aside from me needing to actually get to your clinic, Joe, as a patient, yeah, <laughs> it would be so fun to, to, to look at this with everyone. All right. Well, conversation to be continued. I'm sure. Thank you very much.